Wow. Hello, everyone. I think this is the first time I've ever had all of my main speakers lined up before the anthem was done. So thank you all for your prompt arrival. I really appreciate it. Um, Bridget, Alyssa, how are you doing? Great. Excited for this topic today. Yeah, me too, especially because I feel like everybody's actually um, come to terms with the fact that we are in a bear market. And uh, and, and I think the conversation is much different than, than it could have been, you know, if, if people were ignoring that reality. So um, I think it's going to be a good discussion because I, I'm personally not really bullish on, on anything, either of these asset classes. I mean, if I was going to be putting my money in anything, it, it probably wouldn't be... Uh, be one or the other of the two things we're going to be talking about today. But for the people who, you know, I mean, if we're stuck with just those two investment opportunities, I'd really like to unpack the kind of the pros and cons of each. And uh, just, I mean, you, you and Alyssa, especially are exceptionally good at, at making things digestible for, you know, the, the, the regular consumer, which I'm, I mean, I'm trying to learn to get better at, but I feel like that's a lot of, um, a lot of what we're, you know, I, I feel like that's a lot of people. You're there, in. you're yeah. there. Yeah. Slow it. and steady, I suppose. Um, so we also have uh, Simone here and Daniel Biner and Jim Chong. So um, I think it's going to be a good, a good show today. Um, so do you, uh, um, maybe uh, Bridget, would you want to give us just a bit of a, an overview on your perspective, just high level between real estate versus stocks. I know you've been paying a lot of attention to the real estate market lately. And I know you, I think you recently purchased, purchased a primary residence um, and, and you and Alyssa both doing a lot of content on the fact that the primary residence might not necessarily be an investment. Um, you know, I think most Canadians uh, are still trying to figure out the logic on that one. Um, I can explain that relatively well. And I think Jim can here, but, but let's just, let's just unpack sort of like where we stand right now with with those asset classes especially you know just for like the average canadian outside of toronto or vancouver right so um i always and still do prefer stocks as an investment and i do uh own my home i did purchase it at what i think is now the peak i bought it in february 2021 but i'm in alberta so i don't think that maybe that wasn't our peak here um, but yeah, I think as far as investing goes, I prefer stocks, but of course, real estate is really regional and I acknowledge that and I'm in Alberta. So that has definitely fueled a lot of my opinions on which is the best investments. And so, yeah, I'm stocks, equity markets all the way. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting from my perspective, especially like, you know, in Alberta, I would say it's one of the few markets where you're not really necessarily seeing um, like I, I consider properties in that market more of an investment, a traditional investment than what most people are conflating investing in Canadian real estate to, which I would call call speculation. You know, it's kind of yes. like we see a lot of this buy buy low, sell high investment in in quotation marks in, in Canadian real estate. I think those days are behind us. I hope they are. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because I do have friends here in Edmonton and Calgary, and they do actually manage to purchase investment properties, which are usually quite like affordable condos. I mean, they might even be one hundred or two hundred thousand dollars total purchase price for the condo, and then they're able to rent it out 
for rent that either covers or close to their mortgage payment, maybe even gives them a few hundred dollars of extra cash flow. And they are doing it for just it to ultimately become a purely passive income property. They're not expecting significant price appreciation because we just don't see that in the market that we're in. But there are like some people, like I don't think the margins are very good, but people just like real estate as an investment. And so when they're looking at cash flow, it's still, it can be an attractive market for that as if you're purchasing the right property and you like real estate as an investment. Yeah, fair enough. I think, you know, a lot of Canadians do need that savings vehicle. Like I think homes have been very good as a wealth building tool for Canadians. And so I won't, I won't knock real estate from that perspective. Like I think Canadians have, have historically needed a reason to save money. Um, but I, I think that like that gravy train is kind of over and a lot of people are feeling exceptionally brilliant because they made 30 plus percent year over year returns for the past couple of years. And they did that also with leverage. So, I mean, their cash on cash is, is incredible or whatever their equity on, on the cash that they put into the deal. But um, I, I guess I sort of see that, as, you know, primary residence, especially as more of a liability until at least you've amassed greater than 50% of your equity in the home. Um, I, I still think it's, you know, more of a liability. Just from an accounting perspective, you're strapping yourself to this this debt uh, vehicle. Alyssa, I saw you un- unmuted yourself there. You want to jump in? I know you've got some good insight on this. Sure. All I was saying is I keep forgetting that this is Twitter and I've just been nodding along the whole time. I'm like, yes, exactly. Um, no, I totally agree with both of you. I was going to say investing in the stock market is just a little bit more accessible these days, depending on what city you live in. But I do, again, I'm also in Alberta, so similar mindset as Bridget, where it's like a bit easier to break into real estate here than it is in other cities. But I've also done the math here and tried to figure out what cities it would be better to purchase in. And it never adds up for me as far as primary residence goes yeah i think from my perspective like i don't really work with people who are trying to invest in a a single unit building as an investment again in quotation marks because i just i don't necessarily believe that's an investment like i think that's a speculative trade and you know it's it just it needs its own set of rules usually when i tell people that they're a speculator not an investor that's usually the end of our working relationship so that that's fine. I just that like I I don't have necessarily a lot of experience with uh, helping people speculate in real estate. So, but but I'm sure that we can get some some of that as part of the discussion because a lot of people made a ton of money in, in speculating on real estate, and it was a good get rich quick scheme for the past couple of years. I just you know necessarily wasn't um, a good broker providing that investment as a service. Um, one of the things that I noticed that makes people more attracted to real estate as an investment is it's very easy to understand. And I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the things that Warren Buffett has said over, over time, you know, one of the most famous value investors, investing in companies that you understand or invest in businesses that you understand, that it's easy to make sense of, um, you know, they're all, there seems to be very few of those that exist right now. Cause it's like, you know, some businesses like a SaaS company with, a, I don't know what, you know, whatever. I have no idea how half of these businesses make money. Apparently they don't. And that doesn't matter. Um, but, but, you know, everyone's lived in a house so for residential real estate investing it's simple for most people like it's easy to to understand um i guess my my question that i'm trying to get to with you know with that explanation is and and simone i don't know if you want to maybe start with this one how much of the knowledge barrier to entry seems to be like one of the primary disadvantages of stocks by comparison to i mean you educate people on on stocks yeah 
regularly or for a living, I suppose. So how much of, of that is like what dissuades people um, by comparison to, you know, the, the barrier to entry to real estate, which is really more of a financial one? Like, um, is the knowledge factor the big the big question mark of what's holding people back when thinking I'm not going to invest in stocks because it's just it's too too mystical? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what uh, mainstream media like CNBC wants you to think that professionals are the way to invest in stock market. But reality is I have friends and families that come to me and they don't know anything about stock investing. And usually I'll say, look, I can take an hour or two and just sit down with you, show you how to open an online account. And then I talk to them, I explain to them what an index fund is. And that's pretty much all they need to know. For most people, like 90, 95% of people, like that's all they need. And it's pretty easy to understand. So you don't need, I think there's definitely a conception that a lot of people think they have to be professional to invest. Um, I mean, I work in pension and retirement. I give presentations at work. I don't want to give my employer up because I try to separate that with the podcast. And they, they know I do the podcast, but it's a financial institution. And um, you'd be surprised how many people in a financial institution do not know what an RSP is, a TFSA is, um, the basics of pension. And we have a defined contribution pension, which essentially you put money in, the employer contributes, and then you pick your investments or you are you have a target date portfolio, which basically does it for you. Uh, but I give this presentation, I have to start on the basics because I can't take for granted that people know that. But I think people just get intimidated. They go to the bank, um, you know, they get sold these mutual funds that are pretty high fees typically, um, or they watch TV and then they try to understand a bit about investing and they don't know anything about accounting. And sometimes they just don't want to try to learn. I guess it's easy to give it to a pref professional than just doing the the base work um so i think it's a little bit of a misconception i would say and the other thing too and i know it's more like real estate hard assets but uh with stocks you can still you know can have access to reads and you'll still get that exposure too as Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I think that we're going to say the same Probably. thing. Probably. So. <laughs> you you want to just go because you're... No, oh, I was just going to say that I feel like it's ironic that people think investing in the stock market is so difficult and buying a home is so easy because the process to buy a home is way more complex than the average consumer realizes. And then once they're in the process, they suddenly start realizing all of the additional costs that there are and the maintenance and all of the labor that you have to do. Whereas investing in the stock market, the pros are like, it's low maintenance. You need little capital to get started. There's a strong historical performance and your money's more accessible because it's liquid. So it's really funny that people think the stock market is harder than buying a home okay and i also want to so we didn't say the same thing but what i was thinking is now you actually don't even have to know anything about investing you don't even have to know what an index fund is because you can just open an account with a robo advisor and i think Alyssa, actually you are pure like robo advisor investing i'm a self-directed investor so i do do the index on investing, but you you literally just have to open an account with a robo advisor and put money in it, and they will do all the investing for you. And you don't have to know what it is to still make money investing that way. But I think, uh, especially because a lot of those products are new, a lot of Canadians aren't aware that they're there. 
And if you go to your bank, if they don't have a robo-advisor, like RBC has RBC Investees, BMO has the Smartfolio, but some of the larger ones don't actually offer that service. So they're the ones that are going to push you into the crappy mutual funds and they won't tell you <laughs> that there's better like low fee options out there. Um, on the note, like somebody mentioned in the original thread that the robo-advisors have been like not doing exceptionally well. I don't like, you know, they, I think this, I'll try and pull up the statement, but that, you know, that they're, they're losing against whatever other option isn't available in the market. Is that true? And if so, like, you know, I mean, were, were these robo advisors perhaps just like similar to real estate, all of the real estate geniuses for the past couple of years or all of the stock geniuses for the past couple of years, maybe their success, maybe just a function of, of the market being good. Or is that me just like, cause I, I saw that as well. Like I have, I, I, I've been like AB testing or ABC testing, Wealth Simple, um, Quest Wealth, I think, and then I don't remember what the other one is. Uh, I want to say like I can't remember the name of it, but I'll I'll, I'll try and find the app. There's on my a phone. few. Like I think but. there's like a dozen in Canada already. I personally haven't looked at their performance recently because again, I don't use them. But I have like looked at their portfolios in detail in the past, and the ETFs they pick are like it's very boring and standard like there's nothing that unique in them but i do know they're like quite bond heavy but we're also in an environment where stocks are down like 20 25 the bond market's down as well so these portfolios will be down but everything's down i can't say whether they're doing better or worse um without knowing what they were being compared to in the thread that you mentioned yeah. but yeah i think it's sorry to interrupt you yeah, it says uh question well simple 200 and 300 bips over or below the, the mutual funds they're supposed to be beating. I don't, I guess there's no indication of what those are. I'll just, I'll maybe comment. Oh. Just <laughs> it didn't even say what mutual no. funds. I don't know. Like, yeah, but they are like the ETFs they pick. All these portfolios are really transparent. Like you can actually click on like what we invest in and they will show you how the portfolio is allocated and there's no surprises in there like it's a very standard portfolio that covers all the global uh stock and bond markets and like they're they're just quite dull <laughs> but they they function i'm not surprised that they're down in a down market though yeah fair enough i i found like i had actually when i split tested the three of them i'm trying to find the tweet because i'll try and put it in the nest here but i i split tested like three different apps on my on my phone like just super simple dollar cost averaging apps and well, uh, Quest Wealth, like, uh, it, like, destroyed everybody else. But now this year, like, I left all that money in the account. And now, like, they've just been absolutely smoked. So I guess there's just a higher risk allocation. That's, yeah. So the Quest Wealth, when you chose Quest Wealth, is one of the only robo-advisors that has an aggressive growth portfolio that has no bonds in it. <laughs> so all the other ones, even if you pick a growth portfolio, they're still quite bond heavy, in my opinion. So that's why you probably would have seen massive growth in 2021 when equities were insane. And then it would be the one most heavily downtrodden in the current market environment. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay. I want to try and get to the meat of this episode. I think what everybody came here to, to listen to, which is really like, what is a better investment today, Thursday, October 6th, the both the real estate market and the stock market are, you know, eating shit. Let's put it to put it nicely. Um, how do we how do we advise, you know, or not advise because we're not we're not giving advice here. But, you know, if you're you're in the position, you've got a bag of cash laying around and somebody says you have to invest this by the end of the year. What are you doing? Um, maybe I'll start with Jim. Jim, 
from 30,000 feet, what's the better play right now, stocks or real estate, or is there another alternative that, that I'm missing in this discussion right now? Hello? Sorry. Hey. Bring a pizza. Okay, so uh, right now, I must admit that I haven't bought stocks in a long time except for two, 2022, so I haven't bought in like maybe about two years or something like that. So uh, for me right now, it happens to be stocks because it just seems to be easier for me. So I've been investing since the 90s, right? So it's about 30 years, and I've made a lot of money in stocks, and I've made a lot of money in real estate, and I follow the Warren Buffett's just overall um, definition of what I like. I don't know why there's a debate between real estate and stocks. I really don't understand why. So I followed Warren Buffett back when I was 15 years old, and he pretty much says investments are businesses. Period. Full stop. There's no like your home is an investment if it does this, if it doesn't. It goes, it's just it doesn't matter if it has if it sells a product or service, generates cash flow. The value of the investment uh, of the business is its future cash flows discounted to the present value by the risk-free rate, period. There's nothing else to say. All the cash that a business will generate in its entire lifetime added together, discounted to the present value, is the value. And if it doesn't generate cash flow, that means it's not governed by the income statement balance sheet or statement of cash flows, it's not a business, it's not an investment, period. It's not an investment. A home that you're living in doesn't sell a good or service to anyone else that generates cash flow that can be discounted from the future to the present. So that's like out of the question. It's like not even there. Another thing that's confusing is that people always say real estate or stocks, but when they talk about stocks, they're talking about like the entire market or something like that. Um, they're talking about, I don't know what they're talking about, to be honest with you. They're talking about like stocks as a big I don't know, sort of a, I don't know, a undefined blob of stuff, right? So, yeah, stocks are made up of individual businesses. To determine if the market is at a reasonable price, you would have to sum up the cash flows of all those businesses, discount it, and see if it's selling at a price that's higher or lower. That's really all it is. And a lot of Websites do this and they're like, oh, yeah, based on like um, these assumptions, the stock market is cheap based on these. It's not and whatnot. So you could do it that way or you can break the market into individual components and say this business based on its prospects and whatever discounted to the present is, you know, whatever plus or minus. Or, and the same thing you do for real estate that cash flows. Homes don't count. So I throw all that out. So I look for real estate that cash flows. So I basically look at, say, a 10-unit or 20-unit. What are the rents? What are the expenses? Property tax, maintenance, insurance, reserves, capex, da-da-da. You get the operating income. You know, you're like, okay, this is my likely cash flow for the future. If I discount it, am I getting, am I paying? And if I'm not... It's not good, right? So that's how I view it. And from what I could tell in terms of cash flow and real estate, I don't see any cash flow, period. But um, the stock market, your risk is you might see cash flow, but are you overpaying? So you just have to figure out that little piece. And then I think once you do, I think um, 
I think it becomes a little obvious that stocks are moving in the right direction faster. Hopefully that made some sense. Thanks. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So, so then, okay. Like within that, that logic, like, would you, so you're, you're, you're saying, you know, we would qualify a rental property as an example that yields as an investment or as a business, right? Because it is a business that's selling, you know, the, the residential home to a tenant. Um, and those cash flows can be, can be discounted and analyzed as an investment. Uh, so then let, if we walk it back to, you know, putting aside the semantics that you just mentioned, like, are, can we, do you have an opinion on, on which is a better investment today or which, which one we're going to have be, be presented with better investment opportunities for in the next six months? This, this is what I would do. If you're looking at a rental property, say uh, you're looking at a 30 unit or a 10 unit or whatever, and you've qualified the rent, you've qualified your, your expenses, you have your net operating income, your operating profit, right? You basically divide that by the price is the operating yield that you're getting. That yield needs to be at least, I think, 3 or 4% greater than the uh, operating yield of the U.S. index, considering that you might be taking on leverage risk, concentration risk, and non—you know—it's non-diversified concentration risk. It should—you should be clearing the stock market's earnings yield by at least four percent to take those risks in a singular location. And I don't see that yet. If that makes some sense. And are you saying yield just on the cash flow side or like including capital appreciation? I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion that capital appreciation is likely gone for the next five years, but um, would you include that in, in your calculation? I've never seen it done that way. I've always seen it based off cash flow. And yeah, you can say that there's some terminal liquidation value. So for any business, you sum up all the cash flows and then there's a terminal value where all the property, plant and equipment is like liquidated. Goodwill is just all liquidated. And then I guess you could put it that way. Um, but I wouldn't bet too much on the appreciation. It's basically focused on the cash flow. That's what I would do anyway. Right. Fair enough. Okay. Um, I appreciate the insight. Um, Simone, do you want to, do you want to take a, a stab at this one? Um, if you're, you know, if you're having a dinner conversation with your friend and they're like, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about buying a investment property in whatever Canadian city and, um, how you know what kind of advice are you giving them because maybe they're they're, they're thinking uh, i i'm not i'm not sure if i want to invest in real estate or if i want to invest in stock uh and, and you know they're they're storing their dry powder in hopes of, of making one of those purchases in the next couple of months um you know what what advice are you giving them what what places are you telling them to look what kind of analysis are you uh are you advising that they do to make that decision well, I mean, you know real estate investing better than I do, Dan. But uh, um, aside from that, I'd probably say, look, if the investment, um, I don't know the previous, I forgot his name, the previous speaker, but if the investment makes sense on a numbers basis for real estate, I mean, if you're fine with that and you're, you know, doesn't cause you additional stress, because for people being a landlord, um, you know, it's just very stressful unless you get a property manager, but obviously that kind of eats into your profits. Um, so some people are up for that. Some people are not. I mean, you and Nick talk about it all the time. I mean, Nick seems to have a lot of luck with uh, some weird stuff happening with his properties. And, you know, he's not shy about saying it can be stressful. But on the other hand, you know, stocks can be stressful, too. Um, so you have even if you have an index fund, something like the S&P 500, 
um, and you put some money in right now, I think the valuations are starting to get attractive. I mean, if you're just looking at an overall PE ratio, I think it's around like low 20s. Uh, typically, historically, you'll do pretty well if you kind of invest in the, the mid to high teens. But again, we don't know what earnings are looking like. Uh, companies will be coming out with their earnings in the next month or so, most of the big companies, and we're seeing a lot of currency uh, fluctuations. So companies that have a lot of business outside of the U.S., um, they may see some downward pressure. So that could be, you know, it could be going down a bit more. I would not be surprised. It could go up long term. Uh, like Bridget and Alyssa said, I mean, I think the stock market will do well. But again, if you don't have the right temperament, um, you start investing and you see your portfolio going down 10, 15, 20 percent uh, in the span of uh, a year or a few months. Um, a lot of people could make the mistake of just trying to sell to uh, cut their losses. And then you have the other end where, you know, real estate, the advantage, if you buy it, you don't get to see the price of your real estate every single second when the market is open, right? So you can gauge on what it probably is if you have uh, an investment property. But um, I don't know, it's not, I think it really depends. And if you can do both, I think that's good because uh, the problem I think with big problem with real estate that people don't talk about in Canada is home country bias, right? You'll have a lot of money in Canadian real estate. Your income is dependent on the Canadian dollars, probably the Canadian economy that can vary. Um, at least with investing, you can diversify that away with the US dollar because you know, at the end of the day, that's the reserve currency. It's not uh, the good, good old loony. Yeah, all, all excellent, excellent points. I really appreciate that, Simone. Um, you know, I, I would say like from my perspective, the, the primary advantage is of real estate and i'm happy to hear anybody else's perspective on on what else makes real estate more compelling than stocks but i think the primary advantage is here um is access to leverage for the layperson right like I, I i don't think anything else really not at this scale like i think yeah you can go get margin you can go get 5x you know leverage i think on on margin even if it's like 2x like but you're not getting government insured 20x leverage like you can buying a primary residence not and again like i'm not saying this is a financially responsible decision but but the, i don't think that there's anywhere else that allows you to lever up like a hedge fund on a million dollar asset um outside of outside of housing and then in like and so so i think you know like woes you just posted that chart in the nest there and like i would be curious to see what that what that would look like with you know, when accounting for the rate of return levered, right? Like you're, you've posted it in a way, um, you know, the just pure dollar value. So like real, real returns on each of those things, but you know, or sorry, nominal returns on each of those things that the real return with leverage in, in real estate, I think is going to be different on the, on the appreciation side. Um, I would agree. Like, I think that the, the big thing that, that people don't realize when they're buying a real estate asset is that you're, you're actually buying a, you know, business, you're buying a, a relationship business in a lot of cases, and a business that's pretty management intensive. And so that's why I typically advise people to aim for scale. Like if you're going to purchase an asset, or if you want to get into real estate investing, I would advise that you do purchase several um, and, and try and offset some of that vacancy risk, but also relationship risk, also property management risk, and and get some economies of scale associated with that. Um, but the reality is being a landlord is very much a relationship business. And it's not one that is exceptionally regulatorily friendly 
in the Canadian market. Um, right now it takes, uh, you know, I mean, there was an article out the other day that <clears throat> the backlog at the landlord and tenant board in Ontario here is eight months. I, I've actually personally experienced an eviction that took 16 months. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, it is like the, the, it's a gamble there on just whether or not you're even going to see the yield that, that you're, uh, m- you know, modeling your, your deal off of that. Fortunately that was in a fourplex, so it's still cash flow based on the other three units, but there's a lot of risks here. Um, Steve, you've had your hand up for a minute here. Do you want to, uh, you want to jump in and then we'll get to Jim? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> just in my experience, I got my first property when just out of high school and, uh, I was also in the stock market, Bitcoin since 09. Me personally, I mean, we have some friends that we went to school with that went on to be some hedge fund, you know, small hedge fund managers and stuff in Montreal. And I mean, I used to load up accounts, 10, 20 K for them to trade and futures Forex. I mean, I've lost $250,000 in the markets, uh, since 2014. So for me, I feel more, I mean, I'm still in stocks right now, but obviously down a lot, but real estate has always been my go-to and actually all the money I lost in the stock markets was equity that I gained in the real estate market, right? So, I mean, I've real estate has always allowed me to grow exponentially. However, with the way things are right now, I mean, I got caught with my pants down in 2017. I bought a pre-con in North Oshawa and closing came around and uh, it was 140,000. It appraised 140K less than what I paid and I had 21 days to close on it. So that was a little, that was stressful to say the least, but yeah any any friends i have or anybody in the stock market what i always found is i didn't have the patience i would end up needing the money or i would end up getting bored of not seeing like a good enough return take it out and then it would moon years down the road so i feel like if you're in the stock market you gotta have patience robo advisors like i use quest trade and stuff those are pretty good but i've always been a major you know risk taker uh you know i rather see the return but Right now in our area, I don't know if I, I don't think I see real estate as a good investment. So actually I went heavy in uh, Colombia and Costa Rica. I was able to pick up a couple of properties there with vendor take backs really cheap. And they're, well, I guess they're two years to pay themselves. Like just what I'm getting on Airbnb, you know? Um, So I, I haven't found anything that's been as good as that at the moment and us dollars. Right. So obviously when I bought them a year ago, the Canadian dollar was a little stronger and now it's taken a beating. So getting paid in us dollars helps. Yeah, for sure. I've been looking to get levered exposure to the USD through real estate as well for, for a while. Um, I didn't, didn't get as much as I wanted to, uh, over the past year, but, uh, but it was still there. I think it's interesting actually the point that you mentioned about the, you know, like the discipline of selling or getting bored or whatever. And, you know, Bridget early on in the conversation, you mentioned, the liquidity preference of, um, of people investing in stocks over real estate. I actually think like, I don't, I have the opposite of a liquidity preference. I would prefer my money be less accessible because I'm like, I'm just like Steve, where if I have a stock and it's like, I, I'm just like, I'm not even paper handed. I'm like, just, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I'm, it's not the return that I wanted. I need my money to be trapped somewhere. I need it to be a liquid. Like, and so that to me is like one of the big advantage, honestly, is like the advantage. Like I'm, I'm locked into this property for like a mortgage term, like the, the, you know, settlement costs of me mo- moving that somewhere else prevents me from, from liquidating. And That's, so it's been a, a good advantage. I would, I would agree, Steve. So to, to add to that, I, if it wasn't for real estate, I wouldn't, 
you know, I wouldn't be where I am. I would, you know, I remember when I signed the, I was brand new in the business, you know, had my first client, was supposed to meet her at the sales center there. Somebody in her family who was like, I don't know, they worked for Trevor or whatever at the time, they called me and said, hey, I told her it's not a good idea. So um, she canceled and I was already at the sales center and it was like a zoo there. So I just signed and bought it myself. I didn't even know how I was going to pay for it. So pretty well every real estate property that I've ever bought, I would just sign, commit to it, and then find out how to get the money to pay for it later. And that is like a forced savings for me, right? The money's gone, you know, the fire's under your ass to get the money. So um, that's honestly how I've done it. And then as far as stocks and, you know, mutual funds and stuff, I had people like, you know, friends, moms reach out to me out of high school and want to invest in mutual funds. And I just, I've never never come ahead <laughs> ever you know i've got our resps for both kids rsps out in different you know different places with different people but i just never seen the activity like i've been able to see in real estate even with cash flow so i think long story short the future for me i would look into maybe some commercial real estate or the, the bigger multifamily instead of sticking with like townhouses and single family res yeah i think like that's you know the other component is getting to the like you know when you're when you're purchasing stocks um you're buying right into institutions whereas real estate like it's very hard to get to that institutional scale without investing basically you know like in REITs or a couple of other different investment vehicles like a lot of guys are doing EMD investments into developments and stuff like that like you're kind of Graybrook route um private equity stuff but um but yeah I mean direct investing I think most people it seems like at least the marginal buyer and the marginal investor in Canada, from my perspective, is is doing it wrong, per se. Um, Jim, you had your hand up there. Do you, did you want to um, chip in something um, on that? Oh, yeah, I like the, the comments by Stephen and, and yourself, actually. I think um, it's important to realize that money is sort of an emotional game, and it's a lot of it is driven by personality. So it's very possible that you could find the quote-unquote mathically, mathematically right investment but your personality could sabotage you pretty badly, actually. So to understand your personality, I think what Steve described, what Stephen described was actually really good. And the second thing was um, the leverage. I don't know uh, why people only, it seems like predominantly that people forget that leverage has both upside and downside. So everyone always talks about the upside of leverage, like most of the commentary on leverage is the upside like you can like you know one to five and this and that you know the downside is that it could take you to zero five times faster too so i don't understand that number one and number two is that leverage doesn't um help you do better in real estate in terms of profit leverage reduces your profit i mean you look at the income statement if you have financing charges your profits go down that is not the cornerstone benefit of leverage, right? So a lot of people think that leverage is some kind of profit generator. It isn't. That's not the. That's not where the positive is. Leverage has positives, but that's not it. And real estate, uh, I think Stephen mentioned before, but there's a saying that says, you know, maybe I said it, I don't remember, but I, I just said, you know, to find a deal in real estate, you need to hustle. But for stocks, you just have to wait. You wait, you'll get you'll get your thirty percent down. Like you can wait forever in real estate, you're not going to get fifty percent down. You have to hunt for that. You have to hunt to get 50% down. But I can sit around my ass, go on vacation, and then wake up one day and look, the stock market is 50% cheaper. And I just do something, and I just go back to my vacation. Like, I don't have to hunt. So there's a big difference in terms of passivity 
and liquidity there too, which I think we touched upon. Fair enough. You appreciate the insight there, Jim. Um, Bridget and Alyssa, do you do you think you want to touch on just sort of like the the management intensiveness of you know, especially working with I, I would say like primarily sort of your you know entry level investors. Um, do most of them seem to be like almost I don't know obsessive about management of their portfolio, or a lot of people like trying to just take take a step back and not manage their funds? Like I, I think you know, to me, if somebody's managing their own like I, the one of the reasons real estate works well for me is I'm I'm actually less management intensive with real estate than I am with a stock portfolio. Like I just get obsessed and lose sleep over stocks and stuff like that. And I'm just not like really a good fit for it. I'm not exceptionally like financially minded. I know I tricked a lot of you guys into thinking that I am. Or not. <laughs> um, so how does I get right? I'm good at that like stuff, but, but um, I guess the question being like, is there, is there are a lot of people trying to take a step back and, and not manage stuff? And is that why they're getting into stocks? Um, and so they can focus on, you know, what they're the best in the world at. maybe doing their job as an example. Like, I think that that's, you know, doing your job is probably the best investment you can possibly make. Right. Um, go ahead, Bridget. Sorry. Yeah, I would agree that doing your job is really the best investment you can make. And that's why, like, I really try to drive home to people that if you're in like your twenties, thirties or forties, like your singular financial focus should be increasing your income as much as you can, because at the end of the day, stocks and real estate are really just where you put your wealth after you earn it to protect it from inflation and maybe get a little bit of a return. But at the end of the day, your income is the best, like where you should be focusing all your energy. But I think um, like with, I, I'm realizing from these conversations, like I didn't really realize how much people <laughs> obsess and touch their portfolios. Cause I really think of my investment portfolio like I am building equity the same as someone does in their house. Like I just put my money in my stock portfolio and I leave it there. I don't ever think about taking it out. Like even the amount that I withdrew for my down payment, like I nearly had a heart attack when I was selling those shares. It was so anxiety inducing. It never occurs to me that I need to take any action uh, based on what the market is doing. And it doesn't stress me out to see it go down. Cause I know like, that's what I signed up for stock market goes up and down. So when it goes down, that's a normal thing that I knew that it was going to do at some point and I just uh, continue on. But I actually, I really try to encourage people to keep their hands off their investments. I think most people have the perception that managing your own investment portfolio is really labor intensive and you have to constantly be reading the financial news and doing these calculations about what to buy and when to buy it and when to sell it. And like, you really don't like, honestly, if you just, logged into your brokerage account, like quarterly allocated your contributions, which might take like 15, 20 minutes and then logged off. That is really all the management you have to do for your portfolio. It doesn't have to be active and really people, I'm always trying to get them to look at it less and keep their hands off of it. Yeah, I feel the same way as Bridget. And honestly, real estate is more it's not hands-off that is active investing in my opinion so it's not really as simple as people make it seem and i just feel like the we've thought that housing has been stable for so long so people never predict that anything's going to happen to the housing market for the first time for a lot of entry-level investors they're starting to see volatility there as well so it's not always going to be as simple as put your money in and everything's going to be okay. But yeah, hands off 
like I, I said at the beginning of the pandemic and it still stands true, which is don't touch your investments and don't touch your face. I love it. Uh, Woz, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I just have a question for everybody on the panel, pretty much whoever can answer it. Has anyone uh, heard of anyone losing their investments or their down payments for their homes so far this year? I In have stock not, market. but I'm sure that it's happened. I do, like, I don't know. I feel like my following's like, really loyal and really listens to what I tell them to do. And I tell them, like, if you're buying a house in, like, two to three years or less, you should not be invested in the stock market. Uh, if you're buying a home in, like, four or five years or longer, then maybe it's okay to invest. So I haven't heard of anyone that's lost their down payment, but I'm sure that it's happened but i also feel like a lot of people got scared out of buying houses right now because they're kind of waiting to see how interest rates change and what the impact is on house prices so even if their down payment money is down i think they're just kind of waiting and seeing yeah i i think i haven't seen anything exceptionally bad i would actually be more concerned about people losing money that they HELOC'd or like levered up at home. I remember, I think 2017 was actually worse from, at least from what I'm seeing, like, and maybe it's because, you know, like 2017 was earlier on for me. And a lot of the people that I, you know, was working with had, had more risk, like, and now they have some padding built in. Like I was earlier in my career at that point. And not that I was advising anybody who, who did the things I'm about to tell you, but I remember like reading articles, like that was like one of the first big Bitcoin run-ups and people were like levering up their houses and buying Bitcoin. And then it crashed like sensationally in 2017 and real estate did the same thing in the greater Toronto area. And in Vancouver, it did the same thing in 2016. And so like I heard stories of people who literally like levered up their house and then lost everything in Bitcoin. And then their house went down in value. And then like they were, you know, just completely underwater. I haven't necessarily heard situations. I actually I've heard through the grapevine situations of people doing stuff like that in Canada, not, not with a double, um, high risk asset class, um, strategy, but like a lot of people levering up in, into pre-construction and now they're decimated because the assignment market is completely illiquid in, in Canadian real estate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people doing like or in those positions, similar to the, the uh, position that you mentioned, Steve, where, you know, on closing day, there's no equity um, or negative equity. And now they're scrambling and they're getting privates and they already borrowed on a private to get the down payment for the house or borrowed on a HELOC to get the down payment for that. Um, and then they, they, they don't qualify for a mortgage anyway on it. Um, and the valuations off like and and it's cash flow negative like. I, I think those are the situations, woes that are that are where the where the blood's happening in the Canadian real estate market. And I think those take a longer time to materialize. I haven't really necessarily heard of anybody losing their down payment. It might actually be a blessing for them because now they have to go sa- save up a down payment and, and they're going to be buying in six months or a year when when the prices are better, at least from my perspective. And it's not like people go out of their way and admit something like that. There's shame attached to that. But uh... yeah. I know. A I couple thought of they people. admit everything on Reddit, though. Like you the need, Reddit posts you guys are sharing <laughs> from the housing market are crazy. You have to go on Wall Street bets. Yeah. <laughs> um, Simo, you had your hand up there. I think uh, I can let you jump in, and then we'll go to Stephen. 
Yeah, no, I, I think the point of temperament is definitely really important. Like, I'm like Bridget and Alyssa. Like, for me, I don't, you know, my portfolio could be down, you know, 20, 30 percent, probably is in the past uh, year or so, like most people. I really don't flinch. And the tip I usually give people if they stress out for stocks or they're apt at making a rash decision is delete your broker app on your phone. So at the very least, you have to log into your computer. It's that extra barrier to do a transaction. And oftentimes, you know, it'll be that that extra barrier that'll prevent you from actually making a mistake. So I think, yeah, it's definitely a temperament thing. Um, for me, I think real estate would probably stress me a bit more with all the things that are involved managing it and so on. Uh, stocks, you know, I just don't miss a beat. And at the end of the day for people, if you're a long-term investor, the best outcome you can have is you keep investing regularly in a depressed market. And then when you need the money or when you retire, the market actually enters a bull market you accumulate more and then it appreciates when you need the money. So if you remind yourself that, uh, it makes uh, the bear markets much easier. Great insight. Thanks, Simo. Um, Steven, then I didn't see whose hand went up first there with Jim and uh, Justin, but we'll go Justin and Jim. Yeah, so I'll just add, I haven't seen 2017 and now recently I've not seen anybody in trouble. I mean, me and you, I mean, we're... Like, I'm obviously north of Toronto. So, to be honest, I had as many buyers in 2017 as I, or the height of 2016 that I could count on one hand. And the last two years of the pandemic, it was only listings. I think I had about two or three buyers. Any people that I did, all the people that I listed, they left the province. They went to um, out east or far up north. So, thank God I've got no past clients that are sitting on negative equity right now. <laughs> um, However, I still don't have any buyers right now. So I don't know anybody in any trouble. Um, and it, it seems like those of us, you know, from the smaller towns and stuff, I find when I try to get friends to invest in maybe some properties in the past, it doesn't matter. You could show them, you know, the you could show them the potential right there, but they just, nobody wants to take any risk. And I find, you know, I, my brokerage is in the city and I find, you know, a lot of the guys that I work with, they will take, you know, risk, a lot bigger risk in a heartbeat. So um, yeah, I don't know anybody that suffered any trouble, and I don't have any buyers that uh, that have bought in the in these two, you know, the two peaks. So I'm I'm happy about that. Um, and with the stocks, yeah, it's it's one thing where everybody that I know that's ever been in the stock market, and the reason why I mean I don't know enough to recommend people to buy into it is because pe once people put their money out, they blame you, and uh, so. RESPs, RRSPs, stuff like that. The people that I have, they manage it. I don't need to look at it. But, you know, situations like one friend that I was listening to all of his investments, I mean, he lost a lot of my money over the years in the, um, you know, the futures and Forex and, you know, there was all those scams and stuff. And like you said, people were borrowing money. Like I've, I've been through it all. I've been, you know, I've been through it all. But, um, you know, finally that one friend, you know, uh, ended up, he did hit it big last year and was able to go from nothing and i know that because i would have to lend him money to pay for his top step trader program and stuff and his computer screens and now he was able to hit a, a good runner a penny stock and you know it set him just over five mil 
Um, but that's not that's not investing. That's no, gambling. that, that like is like you're not supposed to be doing forex <laughs> exactly. and penny stocks. Like that's not what we're recommending. Like that is not investing. That's the same as like going to buy a lotto ticket for most And I people. feel like that's why a lot of people, you know, they they hear about these wins in the in the penny markets, which nine out of ten are going to go to zero, and then they don't see those returns with actual good stocks or you know, ETFs and index funds, and then they end up, you know, jumping, like pulling their money out and, you know, and not. So my recommendation on stocks would be that obviously a robo-advisor or somebody that knows what they're doing and you just put the money in over periods of time so you're getting the averaging and then you just forget about it. Yeah, I think I would liken that to like going to the gym, right? Like people are like, oh yeah, like you just got to go to the gym and then you'll get in good shape. And then people go to the gym like four times and they're like, oh, I'm not jacked. Like, I guess this isn't the right thing. Like, I'm just going to quit doing that. Um, I don't know. I think, like, a lot of people just don't want to do the work. Real estate, too. Like, we see it all the time. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, I just got to, like, go borrow 100 k from my house, spread that out over five different pre-construction projects, and then wait five years, and I'll be a multimillionaire. And now those people are absolutely fucked. Like, they will literally never financially recover from the decision that they made. And they're going to be getting sued by developers for the next... 10 years and that's like but and so like i mean neither of those are the things that anybody should be doing in either of these things like get rich quick schemes are just dumb and, and they, they are and i know that, that because situation yeah i've i've actually fallen for all of them you know all those guys years ago where you know they would set up a like a you know an algorithm trader on your account there was a company named kaizen the guy ended up he was found beaten in the ditch in bond. Like that guy lost me over 75 grand. So I've learned you can't get rich quick. And, you know, just like the gym thing you mentioned, it, it you got to put in the work and you got to have patience. And too many people did decide to try to do that with the pre-constructions and buying, you know, six or seven, never being able to qualify for the mortgage in the future. And yeah, it's going to, I do expect to see some trouble in the next few years. Once construction catches up to the, you know, I bought a project in 2017, March, uh, Morningside and Ellesmere, and it's supposed to be done December 2021, and they're just at, like, the sixth floor of concrete now, right? So I do expect to see people in trouble uh, in the next few years when these projects come to completion because the builder gave, the, like, if it's not a freehold, you could literally get a call during occupancy and say, hey, closing is in 21 days, like, find the money or you're going to get sued, right? And everybody in the 200, you know, townhouses where I purchased – had to take on seconds or thirds or sell at a massive loss. Yeah, yeah, it's an ugly situation. It's funny you mentioned the delay, though. I'm actually closing on a ground base that was the original. Actually, it's in in the Dell Park subdivision in Sutton, Stephen. Um, that uh, the original paper was from 2013, and I'm closing, yes. on, I'm closing on it tomorrow. And I um, heard that the the builder gave deposits and ten thousand dollar bonuses back over the years and everything. And yeah, now finally it's like nice to see it done. Yeah, it is funny. Um, I think I got Justin and then Jim and then Unicorn here. Yeah, great conversation. I was actually laughing out loud when you guys were digging into the Forex uh, conversation because that was kind of where I was going to go with things, just watching over the last couple of years. You know, the same people that were hyped and everybody was going to open a cannabis company. Then they jumped into Bitcoin and crypto and then everybody that saw anybody flipping real estate all of a sudden had a YouTube channel and launched a course on how to burr a property and become a multimillionaire overnight. And to me, it's like little kids playing soccer, right? Where everybody is crowded in one thin little thing, ball gets kicked out and then everybody chases that ball and they wonder what the hell happened. But I'll go right back to what Jim said at the very beginning. 
right? About strategic investing. Everything is a business. And whether it's real estate or stocks, like technically you're speculating on the fact that these companies are going to be around over the next hundred years and you're real estate investing, you're speculating on the areas that you're in still going to be solvent places to invest in during the duration of you owning that real estate. And also one thing that Jim pointed out, I don't want anybody to gloss over it. Like how in depth are you actually looking at your business? Right. He was talking about cash flow. Like when we run analysis, it's property management, it's maintenance, it's vacancy, bad debt, it's servicing the debt. It's what happens if the market crashes. I have people that bought at the peak, but we had this conversation with them before the peak shifted. So they were prepared for it. But I just left a conference last weekend in Niagara. There were 600 plus investors and I spent half my weekend talking people out of just purchasing something and getting their financial house in order because some of them wanted to just buy for the sake of being part of the hype when that's not the reason to start a business in the first place, right? This one couple brought me an off-market deal. They thought it was great. They're like, oh, look, the ARV is going to be seven thirty-nine. I was like, yeah, the ARV that was established in April because your ARV now is the exact price that you want to buy this thing at, right? And it, it all has to start with what's your exit strategy. I like stocks. I'm a very boring investor. I invest in index funds and I partner with people that have more information than me. And that's how I do my investing. When I invest in real estate, I invest in very low management real estate. I buy land, 100% cash, no leverage. So Jim should like that. And for a listing Bridget, I mean, there's, there's zero management in that. But I can tell you I have a strategic advantage because of the places that I buy the land in, the 10,000 plus hours I put into affecting those communities and me having knowledge of what's happening there and having a direct control and impact on it. But I look at my investing as a business. I definitely don't think that you can look at passive appreciation as a quick way to just flip your bankroll and become a multimillionaire. You have to treat it like a business. And that starts with cash flow. That starts with knowledge. So I think you have to have knowledge whether you're investing in real estate or stocks. Great insight. Appreciate it, Justin. Um, Jim, did you still, I know you put your hand down there. Did you still want to chime in here? Um, oh, uh, yeah, I, I like that comment by Justin. It's really great uh, in terms of like uh, reinforcing the fact that a lot of people actually just go in for hype. Uh, they just want to be part of something. Like it almost seems like making money is beside the point, which is kind of weird. But um, aside from that, <clears throat> I was a Canadian back in the 90s when we were at 65 cents for the U.S. dollar. But I always invested in the U.S. Like all my assets, all my cash flow is U.S., ever since the 90s. So obviously I'm sitting pretty right now and I, I, I don't understand why more Canadians aren't investing in U.S. denominated U.S. investments. I think that would be a good topic. It's like we're sitting right next to them. The number one economy, the most productive nation on the planet, tons of companies that generate money uh, and productivity hand over fist and we're looking at like what? oil and real estate like i mean seriously like i don't understand so that's number one <laughs> number two is um duration so i've invested through a lot of durations right so the longest downturn i've been through was the dot-com crash uh 900 days i think it was something like that and then the great recession was something like uh, one and a half years or 16 months but the real estate downturn so the toronto downturn 89 to 95 ish I was like six years. And then when I invested in the U.S. market downturn, it was like 2007. And by 2016, there were still markets that were like suffering. So that's like the downturn is significantly different between stocks recover 
I mean, light years faster. I mean, when you're going through a two-year downturn, it doesn't feel like that. But when real estate starts picking up steam and going down, you will wish you had a two-year turnaround because that's not going to happen <laughs> if it starts going down fast. Like it, it, it will take a long time because it's so heavily levered. It's so illiquid. And I think um, because the periods between real estate downturns are so wide, an entire generation just forgets that. And then we have to relearn it again. So uh, that's, I, that's an interesting perspective from, from what I got when I started investing. And I was like, this is just so different. So um, thanks. I love that. Thanks, Jim. I, I agree. I, I think, you know, like the, the counter cyclical event that we're seeing happening right now is going to be sort of like, it's going to, it's going to make millennials realize why 50% of boomers don't like real estate investing. I, I think that's probably going to be the end of, of sort of how this real estate cycle plays out. Could be wrong. I'd, I'd love to be wrong. It would, it would suck a lot less for a lot of people, but I don't know exactly how, how that happens. Um, Unicorn, you've had your hand up for a while here. We'll go uh, to Unicorn and then over to James. And then I'm, I'm going to start rotating some speakers out. So if I kick you out, I apologize. just because I got a bunch of people on deck here trying to get in. So Thanks, Dan. Hey, mate, sorry. I'm a bit under the weather, so I might sound a bit... Uh, no, not, not too well, but um, the only point I was I was going to sort of say is that both asset classes, stocks and real estate, have pros and cons um, to each one. But um, you know, I would recommend anyone thinking about investing in stocks to do it as part of a more broader portfolio. Um, just because you know, I know there were some people commenting about you know adding to stocks over time locking it away, you don't touch it. I mean, if you bought the NASDAQ, you could be up 600%, right? Um, but if you take an 80% drawdown on the same uh, portfolio, uh, you're, you're just bur- just a little bit above where you initially invested, plus you've lost the time decay. And uh, it's going to take a lot of recovery to recoup. So generally, when you know, if you're looking at stocks investing, just try and manage the volatility. That's sort of the, the fundamental thing. And there's a couple of ways you can look at it. But I, th- I think the best option for a general retail investor is like an all-weather portfolio. It's a risk parity strategy. There's a lot of people that criticize it, don't agree with it. But um, you know, if you invested in sort of Dalio's all-weather this year, you'd be down about 15% on the drawdown. Um, and then, you know, you carry through, a, you know, a compound annual growth rate about 7% over time uh, with about a vol of, uh, you know, 6, 6.5%. So because you're allocated across a diverse set of asset classes all weighted for different types of inflationary and growth um, environments, you're able to, to lever that a little bit. So if you can find a, a good source of cheap leverage, um, you can bring that sort of compound annual growth rate up 2x to about 40% while the vol management's around closer to 12, right? So you've got a 12% volatility on a 40% return. Generally performs, you just wait it every quarter uh, to these different asset classes. Um, but, you know, you can read about it online, but in essence, it's 30% to US stock market, uh, f- um, 15% to the intermediate treasury. Um, the I think it's 40% to long-term treasury, 7.5% to commodities, and 7.5% to gold. So if you have that allocation, rebalance every quarter that's the all-weather strategy um you can also look at the permanent portfolio which is a 25 split between cash bonds and stocks um i think it's doing a little bit better on the drawdown this year about 10 percent 
and it's a good way to to, to protect your money on the downside. Um, so you know that's it's a really important when you're investing to, to be able to cap the downside and, and still have um, exposure to the upside. Um, just a couple of other things to, to just call about, like with real estate, just my own personal observations and you know uh, why I think it's a good asset class. I think. Specifically, as it relates to efficient market theory, I mean, when you're looking at stock markets, you're competing against the most sophisticated algorithms and high-frequency trading programs. Market effectively is efficient. All information is priced at that point in time, whereas in real estate markets, it's not efficient. Uh, Particularly if you're in your local community, uh, there could be a range of different factors that you know, will determine the value of a certain property. You can know before anyone else is some someone's about to retire, sell their property, just by speaking to neighbours on the street. In, in my experience, just just from a from a practical perspective, this has been you know hugely profitable for myself. Um, buying heavily discounted properties on large you know blocks of land in you know what I would deem as like sort of tier one neighbourhoods um, that you can add value to and, and, and add you know value through renovations or upgrades of electricals or you know these older homes there's, there's usually a few bugs and bears and if you know how to manage it you can certainly extract quite a lot of equity uh through doing that um but but effectively the, the goal is really to just make sure you're buying at a at, at a at, at, you know the cheapest price possible because uh, that's where you're making all the money the problem is is that it's the illiquidity illiquidity sorry uh the illiquid it's a tough uh, one aspects. no it's just sorry i've got a freaking head cold um the illiquid aspects of real estate right and this is the one thing like in banks we're always looking at is the liquidity of an asset class when we're trying to price it within our market risk models just because if you don't have liquidity the value can may as well be marked to zero because you can't sell it right or you can sell it at a distressed um price and if you look at the uk pensions today they're selling their private assets right now at a 30 percent discount to goldman sachs because in effect there's no active buyers market right now and those pension funds need to liquidate private assets that don't have a deep liquid market like the s p 500 so just just be really careful when you are allocating capital just ask yourself why am i investing in stocks why am i investing in real estate um am i allocating it in a portfolio that is going to have some embedded hedge that in the event there is a very aggressive tightening uh of federal reserve policy any you know liquidity has been drained from the system am i going to be able to withstand the downside and be positioned for when the recovery occurs so just a couple of points i'll stop there Thanks, Unicorn. So wait, you're telling me that I'm not supposed to imagine that interest rates are going to be low forever? I thought... I, uh, well, for four decades, it was, four decades it was trending down, right, in this channel. But I, I read this Bank of International Settlements demographics and inflation report. Um, it was from, data from 2018, but it was, it was a bit scary. I think the demographics are shifting, and that will drive much higher uh, interest rates than we've seen over the last sort of at least two decades. Um, and so, you know, it's just being prepared that what has happened over the last two decades is unlikely to repeat for the next two decades. So, yeah. I think that to me, like, outlines another disadvantage on the real estate side, obviously, you know, like that you still got to service that debt even if you're in a position where you're trying to to exit and like the liquidity like real estate market feels relatively liquid right now days on market are sort of in the gta tapping out at like around 35 30 which is like up significantly from what it was before it was only taking a week to sell a house but like it's very easy for a market to become especially a real estate asset to become a liquid 
if the market goes no bid. And I've said this about cottages a lot lately. Like, cottages are a scary, scary liquidity trap because they cost you money. Like, not only are is your is all of your money um, tied up in that, but it's also costing you a shit ton of money as well. Yeah. That's a negative carry on an illiquid yeah. asset. So if you are saying, look, I'm hell-bent on investing in real estate, go to the most um, – I just go to the most – uh, how else to describe it? The neighborhoods that have the highest median income would be a good place to start. Why? Because there's always going to be a bidder in almost any environment, even if interest rates are six, seven, eight percent. Because these are the neighborhoods in which people who have high incomes and can service high debt are able to then uh, invest in. And, and traditionally, if they're going to invest in private real estate, they're going to do it in their own neighborhood. So, you know, all you need to do is think basically from anywhere from Bloor Young up to David Bill on that train line, bang, all along that line. Lee side's another area as well. But just high pockets of, of, of wealth in the, in, the, in the sort of downtown Toronto core is always going to have some buyer, no matter how bad, you know, market yeah. conditions can get. Yeah, it's funny. Like, a lot of people make that core argument. And um, I guess we'll jump over to James after this. But... Um, a lot of people make the core argument, but I have the same perspective on price floor stuff. Like I buy quite literally like the shittiest product that you can possibly buy in, in the country in a lot of cases. And I feel like I always know that I'll have a buyer because if you can buy the cheapest multiplex in the country, you know, I mean, there's always a price floor renter and there's always a price floor investor. And, and so it, that's worked well for me. And, and, and you need thick skin to be in the business that I'm in. But, but you know, so it, it, the opposite phenomenon, I think, is also true. Right. Affordability will always be in style, too. Yeah. Look, and look, that's that's fantastic that you've been successful. I think you need to have some specific knowledge in that area. And it sounds like you do and you're, you're positioned for it. So extract that value. Well, you can. I guess just I'm just more for, for everyone's benefit. If you're like, you know, I want to invest. I don't want to lose money. How do I do it? My advice is to just try and if you're going to do real estate, try and find it in those pockets um, to just protect the capital that you're putting and investing. Because in effect, if you're buying a house, you're not really going to sell it inside 10 years. So you're kind of handing over your money uh, to a certain neighborhood. So just make sure that neighborhood is pretty robust and just go back through wherever there's been you know the data is available and look at how the you know suburb has performed in stress events like you know 2017 drawdowns you know 2020 COVID. how does it perform that's a good indicator of a robust sort of neighborhood yeah fair enough um james did you still want to jump in here uh i put my hand down i think you guys covered my question pretty well between uh jim and unicorn there just i had further questions on drawdown risk of of real estate versus stocks in an environment where the market seems to be you know moving faster and faster um to recover so uh yeah all good but just wanted to shout out thanks to dan for another great space um super awesome balanced conversation this one Thanks, James. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, I got uh, three speakers here that I haven't heard from yet. Uh, Marcus, I think you're the first one through the door. Do you uh, do you want to add anything here? Um, and then I'm going to try and rotate in one more speaker. Um, if not, we'll go over to uh, to Nevin or uh, Braden. What's up, Dan? Hey, buddy. How are you? Good, man. I, I'll chime in on uh, Jim's latest comment or whatever it was about Canadian home bias. And uh, there is a extreme Canadian home bias that exists in this country where they feel the need to own an outsized weighting to Canadian companies and Canadian stocks. Vanguard Canada posts every year, 
the state of Canadian home bias with equities they hold. The latest number is that 60% of domestic equity portfolios are made up of Canadian stocks. Uh, Canada's weight in the global equity market is 4%. So you're 60% weighted into the 4% global market cap of equities worldwide. This is a huge mistake. It is a giant mistake most Canadians make. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're hoping that that changes over time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming especially clear to Canadians right now that, you know, that the importance of getting rid of that home country bias. Um, I, I mean, I imagine, I want to say it, it's too late to, you know, to be thinking about USD exposure, but I think there's probably still more downside to the Canadian dollar, especially if we get into, you know, trailing the U.S. rate hiking cycle a little bit and we see a little bit more destruction on Canadian dollar. Um, if we can't, if we can't keep up with how far they are, are going to end up hiking. Um, Marcus, I don't know if you're, if you are here, did you want to chime in? I know that you, you jumped in here. Um, yeah. So I just want to give you a chance to speak yet. Hey Daniel, how's it going? Um, yeah, just, I guess I'll chime in on that point. Uh, I'm an advisor in Ontario and, uh, we definitely see a lot of clients come to us from the banks and they do have a big country home bias. Um, and like you said, you know, makes up about three to 4% of the world's GDP in Canada. Um, but the big problem with most countries, they actually, most countries, citizens of countries, they do invest mostly in their own country, about 58%. Um, and the major problem in Canada is that you have uh, the sector allocations there. There were very financial and materials and energy focused economy. So you're not getting a lot of technology companies in there, you know, so it's mostly energy. So for the past about 10 years, I mean, energy hasn't been a great investment. And that's mostly why a lot you see a lot of these portfolios that are doing poorly. Like if you look at the, you know, any of the big banks portfolios, um, you got Quest Trades portfolios, all these portfolios, they have about 30, 40 percent allocations to Canadian stocks, which uh, until recent have been doing good. So. Uh, I just wanted to chime in on that point. And then I was just listening into the call. Um, this calls, you know, real estate versus stocks. And I'm just curious. I'm not a real estate investor myself. Uh, I do know a few different guys that own, you know, one extra property other than their, ho- their uh, home. And I'm just wondering, are these guys buying these within their corp or if they're, are they owning these personally? Because I didn't hear any talk about, you know, how their investments are taxed, right? So... From from what I know, um, you know, t- the tax on you know owning a real estate, to say you're renting a property out, that's taxed at your marginal rate, the the, the rent that you're receiving. Whereas with stocks and uh, you know investments, you have RSPs, TFSAs, things like that. So I think there's uh, you know that's one thing that I don't think was said here, but uh, yeah, to think of as well. Really excellent, excellent point. Actually, the tax element doesn't get touched on very much i'll i'll explain why um real estate is most likely the most underreported income uh i mean rental income would be most likely the most underreported income right. in canada i think that you know people just don't claim their rental income quite simply like and you know there is i, I wish we had jason Pereira on here because he, he he really really um blew the holes in the side of that the holding company myth for real estate and and it being a tax advantage but you know the reality is, I think 
it's just so many people operating as amateurs as landlords like you know you can you can see it in the fact that the landlord and tenant board is bogged down obviously there's definitely um you know bad actors on both sides of the aisle but um statistics canada just recently came out with this reasons for eviction over the um in i I don't remember what the the timeline was but it was like 87 percent landlord initiated um the remainder being non-payment of rent so they were like landlord wanted to use the home for their own purposes landlord wanted to renovate whatever it was right so and this is to me it's not necessarily that these people are being malicious in those reasons but these are all symptoms of speculation being the primary driver for people um investing in real estate and so i think that you know to answer the question that you're asking i i don't think the majority of the the people that you're calling investors who i would probably call speculators but the people who own one extra property um I don't think most of them are saying, I don't even think it's on their radar. Like if you were to say you have to pay tax on the income that you're making, they would say, oh, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm cash negative. So what income, right? True. And so, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I just like, that's how, to be honest with you, that's how bad it is. Like when I, when I have, when I hear about and have conversations with the average speculator or spec investor, that's, that's how bad it is. I hope that answers yeah. your question. No, hey, Dale, Dale, if I could speak to Braden's point about like home country bias, um, one of the dynamics of the Canadian market re- re- really is that it's so commodity heavy, right? And so you get this, you almost get this like negative correlation to actually global economic growth. So when Canadians are like pumped up, they're like, oh, listen, you know, I'm not doing as bad as America or whatever. It's actually when like the world is actually falling apart. It, it's an interesting dynamic where um, coming back to Brandon's point is like let's this is the time where you overweight U.S. tech stock you overweight all that stuff I just want to add that that one quick point 100% agree with that right like if, if you are overweight Canadian stocks which traditionally Canadians are 60% of equity portfolios held in Canada are owning Canadian equities you are underweight business quality because you're not exposed to the greatest businesses in the world that trade south of the border and you are overweight commodities underweight pricing power these businesses don't have pricing power it's a bad way to go long term and uh i hope it changes i think there's also something to be said for even just keeping like a good portion of your dollars in canadian dollar now that we've seen it sort of decouple from the oil market and almost become like a housing-based dollar and the housing-based economy right like i think that you know to me a lot of people ask what the what the bait like you know what the short opportunity is on the canadian housing market and i would just have to say it's um you know it's the canadian dollar really is like where you're going to feel i think a lot of that and and we'll see that probably materialize in the next couple of years that's that's my perspective on the matter at least um nevin you've had your hand up for a little bit here and then i want to actually um get bridge and Alyssa's um thoughts on on what was mentioned about waiting in, in Canada as well. But, uh, but Nevin, jump in. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, I sort of just wanted to speak to what, uh, what Jim had mentioned about, um, you know, investing in the U S economy versus investing in the Canadian economy and how we're really a bit of a one trick pony, you know, it's oil and real estate and, you know, and just how so many people don't understand how long a downturn downturn can look. You ask any, Buddy in real estate in any of the energy markets in Canada, and they'll tell you how long that can work. I mean, like, uh, we started losing, our prices started decreasing. We started going into a bear market in 2014. 
we finally matched the 2014 prices where we originally had peaked in December of 2021. It was a solid seven-year down cycle. And that included on the back of the biggest stimulus, you know, package of all time and effectively free money. It took that to cycle out. If that did not happen, I don't think we'd be anywhere near it now. You know, we would have been looking at a, you know, a 10 plus year um, down market. Whereas, you know, what, what are you talking? Three years, 16 months, different things in the stock market. And I really don't feel that that is properly discussed enough in terms of uh, real estate investing, Canadian real estate, of just how down, how long these down cycles are. I mean, I know Bridget's in Calgary. I, they would have gone through a very similar thing. I think they pulled themselves out a little faster than us. But if you deal with Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, the energy provinces, I mean, we're really just so tied to very little industry that these, these downward cycles can take an extraordinary time to work their way through uh, through the market. And I think that's the biggest risk in Canadian real estate investing. Yeah, I think, you know, outside of your your major immigration hubs, uh, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, I, I would agree with that. I think Calgary is evolving as an interesting component in that discussion um, because we've seen so much net inter- interprovincial migration from Ontario to, to Calgary. I think Calgary is actually, potent- like, there's potential for it to experience a, a bit of a renaissance period over, over the next little while. Um, some recent data showing that a lot of millennials are leaving Ontario and, and moving to, to Alberta um, and, and, and chasing affordability, really. I think there's like 90,000 um, job vacancies in, in Calgary, so the employment market's decent. I can't say the same for Newfoundland if we're talking about oil exposure, um, just given like I think Statistics Canada, I, I believe Newfoundland is the only place that's predicted to go down in population between now and 2040. So obviously exposure to uh, an aging population. And, you know, these are the elements that a lot of people miss when thinking about um, the cyclicality of real estate long-term, like you're describing the long-term cyclicality of real estate. So um, I I agree with you. I'm interested. Uh, Look, I was born basically at the peak of the, the the last peak of the real estate market in, in Canada before, and so I've, I've only seen a bull run, but I've always been fascinated by this idea of, um, of bear markets. And, and I, I've been, you know, notoriously wrong about my bearishness, but eventually you're going to be right. And, uh, and it seems like my time has come. So I'm, I'm curious to see uh, exactly what ends up happening uh, now that we're seeing a sort of counter cycle happen here. Um, I want to try and I'm going to make an effort to wrap this up. I, I've, I've, I feel like I've got everything I, I want out of this conversation. My only curiosity um, really is to, to get an understanding, Bridget, um, and what was mentioned about like the waiting, um, like a lot of these robo-advisors, et cetera, like I think that, um, you know, when you're getting getting with, having discussions with people who are getting, you know, new to investing or trying to do it like more passively, um, are these considerations made at all that people do want to get exposure to companies outside of Canada, um, to currencies outside of Canada? Like, are people thinking now about, you know, the weakness of the Canadian dollar? Um, are these conversations like beginning to happen or were they always happening? Um, just, I feel like you really, you really have a good, like, um, you're really in touch with the sentiment of like sort of your, your marginal investor right now. I mean, I try to have them with people and I talk a lot about home country bias and the importance of diversifying uh, not only in geographies, but also in currencies. Like I talk about it on my Instagram. I talk about it in my course because most people don't 
think that much. And because a lot of the messaging out there is always like, invest in what you know. So every Canadian's like, oh, I'm going to buy some REITs and shares of Shopify. And that's it. So I'm not surprised by the statistics that most Canadian investors are too heavily uh, weighted in Canada. But I mean, I definitely encourage otherwise. And I think that's one of like the benefits of investing in the stock market versus real estate, because when you are considering investing in real estate, it is usually within Canada. Not a lot of people are looking at international markets because it is so much harder to do there. But with the stock market, you literally can really easily diversify across multiple countries, multiple asset classes and multiple currencies with like the click of a button. So it's great, but I don't, I don't think the average investor thinks about it that way or they don't realize it. So that's part of a lot of the financial education that I do. Fair enough. Yeah. I appreciate the insight. Um, is there anything anybody else wants to add here before uh, we start wrapping up? Hey, Daniel, Go I, I, I got an important question here. I saw someone tweet in the U S where they're seeing like, like proper real estate guys, like, you know, institutional real estate guys are, are not deploying capital in, you know, in their own projects because they see incredible value in, in, uh, in the stock market, real estate investment vehicles, REITs, et cetera. I, I don't know if, if anyone has a view on that because I'm kind of curious. I don't follow the REITs that closely, but that is actually one thing I'm very curious about. Yeah, so I, I mean, if you just analyze the numbers of it and maybe somebody who's a little bit more well-versed in this can, can clarify, but I mean, if you're a REIT right now, like you can literally... Even a Canadian REIT, um, I'll try and pull one up as an example maybe, but you can literally buy back your stock at a better rate of return than you could go and buy a, a property on the market. So, you know, like if you're, if you're um, allied as an example, you know, I, I'm not sure what their dividend yield is right now. I can pull it up. But, um, you know, they're primarily office owner in, in downtown Toronto. They're probably buying in the four to five cap range. And so as long as they can get a better rate of return purchasing their own um, stock back and like th- this is the, just the most proximate example like it's not a real example but this is the most proximate example that I can give you um, that like quantifies the phenomena that you're saying because like the, the real estate market is taking a really long time to materialize like the, the downward stickiness of of real estate has become especially clear during this down cycle and and I think a lot of that has to do with, especially in Canada, a lot of it has to do with some of these new programs that are coming in, um, you know, helping people with mortgage delinquencies, deferrals, et cetera. And so I, I think, you know, when investor, once investor uh, rate, cap rate expectations or price expectations are realized, we'll see a lot more, you know, transaction in the asset space. But right now, I think like the, the equity side or whatever you're calling it is the better move for anybody's money really like the, the real like the the returns on real estate just are, are not good um yeah because it's yeah go ahead unicorn sorry i just want to say something tom just to answer your question so i heard from black rock uh, blackstone this week i didn't realize this but three years ago they didn't have in canada i think any industrial real estate exposure and they're now uh believe it or not the largest industrial real estate owner in canada in three years uh, and they did that throughout the acquisition of REITs. And um, to your point around, do you go out and buy the physical asset or do you buy the listed security? Well, this is their strategy is just to be able to accumulate um, so quickly through three transactions. So yes, they are deploying CAM, a lot of capital. Um, they're bringing it to Canada. 
um, whether that's a bullish thesis or they're just underweight. Um, I don't know. They didn't go into that much detail, but I, I, I took that as very interesting that to go from zero to the largest in three years, pretty remarkable. They're a behemoth. But don't worry, they're not coming after residential. It's not too yet. Fra- too fragmented. Wait, wait until I assemble all those, those single-family homes and do a fund and sell it. Yeah, you, the, the unicorn ETF, they can acquire that. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, little bit concentrated. Yeah, of course. Um, Matt Young just jumped on here. He's always good for a good last-minute question. Matt, how's it going? Matt? Hello? Hello? There hey, hey, how okay, are you? Okay, uh, doing great. Uh, first of all, great speakers, great, great panel. Everybody's been fantastic, and, and I love stuff like this. Um, I just, I'm just going to make a quick 60-second comment, and then, and then uh, sort of I'll buzz on out of here. But one thing I've, I heard somebody say, and maybe been you, Daniel, earlier, is you, you personally felt that having a, a, you know, a primary residence is a bit of a liability, and I don't disagree with you on that. Absolutely, um, in a lot of cases it is because your money's tied up in in debt, or it's tied up in a in in a in a product that you're right. In a lot of cases, isn't very liquid. Um, but depending on what you want to do and what kind of primary residence you buy. And I think you'll, you'll probably agree with this. You can generate cash flow. Uh, but you, if you buy a primary residence, a fairly large house that has you know, a basement suite built into it, um, then you, know, you could rent that out and, and create some cash flow on your own. So um, there are some ways, and I know people who've bought primary residences and they live upstairs and they run the business downstairs. So there are some ways you can, you can certainly do that. And the other thing is... Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I do a little bit of real estate, mostly real estate myself, uh, but also some some stock investing as well. My stock portfolio is really small, and I don't really talk too much about it because I'm a media guy, so I try to be careful. But um, you know, I did hear someone say that uh, you know I could sit on my butt and allow the stock market to to bring in you know far more uh, of a return than real estate, and that could be very true. I don't dispute that, but. Honestly, I love doing the work. I'm a do-it-the-work kind of guy. I love getting out the hammer and the drills and the screws and, and adding on or finishing basements and doing like that. So some guys enjoy that kind of thing. I think that there's some people who say, well, you know, you could have just sat on your couch while the stock market made you, you know, as much or more money. That's probably true. But for some people, they can't sit on a couch. I mean, some people like to get up and, and be working outside and doing that sort of thing. So, um, so I mean, great conversation. I mean, a lot of good stuff to go over and, uh, and, and a lot to learn. And I think the other, the third thing I'll mention here, as far as the stock market goes, I think there's some people who are afraid because they look at the stock market and they look at stocks in general and they think of this big thing that you can't see, can't smell, can't touch, and you just sort of hand your money over to a bunch of computers and, you know, at the end of a year or two or three or four, you might make some or you might not. And I, I think that there's a lot of people who envision the stock market as just kind of a big roulette table, which it's not. And and I would like to see just more basics taught to maybe younger people about how it's not quite that way. And even over the last five to seven years, I've learned a lot about about the stock market and, and how um, how – I want to say, I don't want to say easy, but how um, less mentally intensive it can really be. So those are my thoughts on that, but great conversation, guys. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I appreciate the insight. I mean, look, like the things that you're describing, um, they, they actually like strengthen my resolve that the primary residence would be like a, 
a liability, like, you know, doing yard work and stuff like that. Like those are just like their physical versions of, of, you know, like of, of managing uh, of the liability rather than, and then like, yeah, I mean, house hacking, whatever, like that's just, again, that's compartmentalizing. You're basically sacrificing an element of your primary residence and turning that piece into an investment. It's not really making your home into an investment. It'd be like me saying, yeah, you know, your primary residence can make you money. You can Airbnb it as an example. You just have to leave the house and go live in the forest for a couple of weeks at a time. Like it's not, there's always a compromise, right? I think that the, the important component is on the primary, you have to be a really, 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 really bad investor, really bad investor to not be able to beat what the return that you could get from real estate in a lot of country or a lot of parts of Canada, um, like, you know, between appreciation on your primary residence. So, but you know, in Toronto, Vancouver, a lot of these places that had saw the huge run-ups, if you timed the, 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 you know, buy low, sell high perfectly. Yeah. You might be able to outperform, um, the stock market, what you could do with that 20% down payment plus every single interest payment that you made. And remember those elements as well. And that's even ignoring some costs of, uh, taxes, maintenance, insurance, etc., because those are also owned. But if you're to, to allocate all of those things into one, and 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 dollar cost average all of those interest payments into the same stock or into the index, you'd have to be a really bad investor to to uh, not outperform a house in your market, as an example, in Saskatoon, a primary residence in Saskatoon, or uh, you know, mo- again, most Canadian cities um, until recent times, and then we saw this huge run up. And now we've seen what happens after a huge run-up, which is prices come down just as badly. So when you do outperform it, you're also exposing yourself to the risk of massively um, or massive downside, which is underperforming the market as well. Unicorn, drive us home with some some final thoughts here. No, it's actually just a challenge to your your opinion there. Um, And normally I would agree with you. Primary residence could be a liability. But in Canada, we're a very heavy taxation uh, sort of country. So if I'm to say, Dan, buy a primary residence, make a million bucks, sell it, keep all of it, or take your money, put it in a non-registered stock account, make a million bucks, sell it, and pay 50% whatever tax. I mean, do you still hold the argument that you know your primary principal residence is still a liability in that in that in that in that vein? So I guess I guess you're right. Like the tax advantage is a huge advantage, but but then my you know, putting it in a non-registered isn't my only option. My options, yeah, I can put it in TFSA or RAS or RRSP. But let's mm-hmm. say so TFSA is maxed at what, like sixty k. Right. So my down payment is going to be two hundred. So if yeah. I put sixty k into a TFSA and then one forty into a non-registered, yeah, you're right. Like you know, in Toronto, uh, you know, uh, it probably if, if I was in the US, I would have a different opinion in Canada and specifically, I think most Canadians, and this is probably why we have this psychology of real estate. You, you need to extract as much value out of your primary principal residence because it is a tax-free investment. Do you feel that way like in all of those, like in all markets in Canada though, or just like Toronto, basically Vancouver, like any of the high appreciation it, markets? Like it, any it, of the ones that are sort of this high, arbitrage? High income individuals in high growth markets is where I think it applies the most. Now, if you're a low income individual, you couldn't probably care less because your tax rate's not such a, a heavy burden but if you're you, you know if you're making seven hundred thousand dollars eight hundred thousand dollars a year you know you're going to try and want to bury as much of that into your prime principal residence yeah I, i'm not i'm i'm inclined to agree with you on that like i do think it is massive tax tax advantage i think that is one of the big advantages of the primary residence as an investment vehicle for for canadians 
um, especially on the appreciation side. And also making the assumption that, like, the average Canadian is a bad investor, like I said. Like, I think that, you know, you know, saying most people, you have to be a really bad investor to not be able to outperform a lot of those things. Well, if you're living in Toronto and you can afford a, a you know, a house in one of those high-growth areas like you're describing, you're probably not that bad of an investor, I would assume. You're probably pretty you probably have pretty good earnings. Maybe you work in the space. And, and so you, you might be able to outperform the market actually. Um, but then again, you don't get the tax advantage of it. So I, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. Like that is one of the big, big advantages um, on the, on the real estate side. Uh, anything else anybody wants to add in before we, uh, before we wrap this one up, I really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate all the insight from everybody. Uh, recordings will be available on, uh, they're all available on all podcast platforms. Just search hashtag Toronto or T O R E, uh, Twitter space recordings or something like that. And, um, I'm currently in beta with something that turns these into like cool YouTube videos and puts them on YouTube. Um, a couple of them are trying to upload right now. It's not really working yet. So, but eventually they'll be available on my YouTube channel. So I will start posting those whenever they become available. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Um, happy to have a conversation about, uh, what kind of topics we want to cover next week. I don't really have anything in mind yet. And the next bank of Canada announcement isn't, I don't think until 26. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's have that discussion afterwards. Thanks again. Have a great weekend, everyone.